Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Eric Bilstead, you know, you were talking about the, these power outages in, in Texas. Yeah. that still have, like, you know... Over a million people without power. It's it's not just the power that that's bad, but a lot of these places don't have water. Mm-hmm. That that's yeah. that that's been the thing. Now, first of all, if, if you're not like on city water and you have a, a loss of, if you're on wells or stuff like that, and there's no power to drive the wells, you're in trouble. But even in the places that are on city water. The, the the power shut down and the damages to the infrastructure have been terrible. So you have people who have no water. More than 7 million people are being told to boil their water before they consume it. Well, right. And that's and that's the people that have it. I know there's a lot right. of people in, in Austin and in Dallas and stuff who don't even have water. They yeah. don't have access to it because either the, 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 the pumps aren't working because they don't have electricity or because there's so such low water pressure and all. But... No bathing, no toilets, no. no nothing. I mean, it's right. It's going to get a little bit warmer, but how do you do it with that? And yeah. apparently, there, there's no, like no bottled water. I was talking to some people. I mean, it's it's just all gone. And then, I mean, think about all the people that think of the plumbing situation. I mean, I read somewhere that some people won't even be able to get a plumber until March at yeah. the earliest. And you're talking about just devastating. Well. Yeah, pipe breaks and everything else. No, it's just I mean it's just this this ongoing nightmare that that comes from that this situation with no no real end in sight because my my thought, my sense is in Texas and, and I was there I was in the Dallas area for the Super Bowl when the Packers were there and mm-hmm. that was the week we had a blizzard yep. here it was the last true blizzard that we we had here and that they had had two bad ice storms that pretty much just shut down the city right before the super bowl but the only good news about that was first of all their philosophy is i think essentially the 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 way of dealing with roads and snow and ice is just to let it melt Mm -hmm. because typically it it does but the it actually worked out well for us because all these all these places, all these people who had reservations and stuff, they canceled them because they were afraid to go out. You know, we, my, my, my buddy and I, you know, we're, okay, we're from Wisconsin. We're, we're like, hey, can you get us in to eat here? Well, normally we wouldn't because we were booked up. But here, yeah, yeah if, <laughs> sure. if, if you're stupid enough to try to drive down here, we'll be glad to serve you food and stuff. So, <laughs> but it's... It's just uh, it's just amazing, and it just shows that um, we've been complaining here about the cold and stuff. But as I was saying the other day, at least th- there have not been any sort of widespread power outages yeah, or things like that. It's a devastating situation. Um, hopefully it will get better. All right. As I said before the show started, if you are one of those, the politically correct and the perpetually offended, may- maybe you want to like, check out, come back in tomorrow, because there's a lot of topics I want to discuss, starting with a story out of Indianapolis. Now, now let me give you the top line on this. At some point in time, can't we be honest when it comes to issues related to race? And should people really lose their job for saying what they mean? Now here, and my answer would be no, but, but hear me out. All right. There, there's in Indianapolis, they have the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Okay. So it's the local art museum that is there. Um, they are, and they have been, looking for a, a new art director to work on to work at the museum and so back in january they post like a six page 
employment description, a job description on the Internet trying to seek candidates to apply for for this job. And the the guy that wrote them, the the director, the guy who's in charge, the chief executive, his name is Charles Venable. And he's been with the museum forever. And he, he, you know, he says, yeah, I I, I wrote this. And again, it's not like just a, a one sentence advertisement he says okay it's a six-page description because we're we're looking for somebody to take the art museum to the the next level all right so in this six-page description there is one or two sentences that attract the attention of of people and it's now caused this guy to be forced out of his job the, the employment listing that they put on on the firm's website that again has been up there for several weeks but only became controversial friday when somebody knows it says the one sentence says that the in in looking for the person to come in and take over this job as the art director uh, director for the museum that says the museum I hope you're sitting down for this because I don't want you to be shocked or otherwise offended, but here's what it said. It said the museum was seeking a director who would work not only to attract a more diverse audience, but to maintain the museum's, quote, traditional core white art audience, end quote. So that that was the phrase that he was out there. We're looking for somebody who can attract a more diverse audience, but at the same time, somebody could also maintain our traditional core white art audience. Right now, this, like I say, it's been up there for a, a month or so. Somebody notices on Friday that the guy he last week, the guy he, in this job description, he said, well, we're, we're trying to, again, get more diverse, but at the same time, uh, maintain our traditional core white art audience. And the the people who are out there tut-tutting go ballistic over the fact that he made a reference to the white art audience. And it, it, he, he the the art the director comes out and he says, "Look, I'm I'm sorry if people are offended by this, but and and I apologize if people were offended by this, but I, I'm I'm saying you know what what we mean. This particular art museum, the core audience that that." It appeals to the people that are the patrons, the people that that by and large attend this are a traditional core white art audience. That's who it is in the ad. They're saying we want somebody who can expand on this. We want somebody who's going to bring some diversity here. So we're going to be able to attract a more diverse audience so we can broaden it. But at the same time, we don't want to turn off our core audience. So that's what we're looking for, somebody who can broaden what we're trying to do, but at the same time not alienate our core audience that the reality of it is it's a traditional core white art audience. And because he includes the word white in there, well, he's now been forced to resign. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Was there anything really wrong in this ad? And and I guess my, my question here is, if this is the reality, that you've got an art museum in this case, or you've got a business, and your core audience, your core demographic is whatever, in this case it, it tends to be, apparently it's a white art audience, and you want to find somebody who's going to be able to broaden that, be more diverse, bring in a more diverse crowd, but at the same time, not 
not kill your core audience. Is there anything wrong with saying that? Should this guy have been forced out? And and people were just again absolutely outraged. Oh, this is insulting. You know, how how dare you how dare you, you know, turn your back on diversity and how dare you, you know, talk about how, you know, you've got this traditional core white audience. How dare you even say that? But but that's that's the reality of what the art museum's audience was. Was there anything wrong with this ad? And again, for people, if people are saying, well, he shouldn't have said that it's a core white audience. If it is a core white audience, if that is, in fact, the truth, does the guy lose his job for for the truth? And, and I mean, I'm looking at this ad. Instead of tap dancing around what they want, I think he's being very clear. He says, look, these are who we're bringing in now. These are who our patrons are. We want we want more different people to come in and be patrons, but at the same time, we don't want to turn our back on our original patrons. Is there anything wrong with saying that? 855-616-1620. My answer would be no. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Connie in Portage. Connie, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I think he was definitely wrong. Um, I, I think that's condescending to the blacks, the Latinos, to everybody. I really think he was wrong in saying that. He could have just left that out. But and it, it would have been fine. Well, and he could, right? He could have just said traditional audience. But okay, so let let yeah. let's work let's let's work through this. So let let's say you're interviewing the candidate, and you say, okay, here here's the deal. Um, I I want you, I I our audience right now. We've got the, this these traditional. We've got our traditional audience. I want you to expand the number of people who are coming in, but at, at the same time, not alienate our traditional audience. And then the job applicant says, well, what's our traditional audience? What are the demographics? Well, what do you say then if he says, well, it's basically um, 95% white and um, you know people ages 50 and older? I mean, if, if that's the reality, what's wrong with saying it? First place, I don't think that is the reality. I think that is is very prejudiced. I, I, I mean, I'm white, and I'm sorry, but uh, I when I was in college, we went to the museums, yeah. and there's a lot of black people and Latinos that go to museums. Oh, it's, but well, I think a lot of white people think they don't. Well, but but this this guy, see, nobody nobody is saying that that's that's not what the the makeup of the I, look. And I'm not arguing that like people who are Hispanic or black don't go to museums, but this particular museum, I, and I don't think in this story nobody is saying that he's he wasn't accurate the vast majority of people who attend go to this particular museum for whatever you know fit into that demographic group so if if you're looking to expand beyond that what's it wrong with identifying the group that's there that you're looking to broaden the audience for I still think it's wrong. I think you're wrong. I think he could have left that out completely. Well, he could have. No, th- thanks for calling me. No, I'm, okay. He could have left it out. Yeah, yes, he, he could have left it out. But my point is, if this is the reality, I, I mean, if if the reality is you're looking at the demographics, like this is our audience, and our audience is overwhelmingly white upper class people and we want to expand we want to be more diverse we want to do we want to attract a broader more diverse range i mean isn't isn't that good you would think that that would be applauded so that's what he's trying to do but before you can do that but at the same time we don't want to bring somebody in who's going to 
alienate our, our base. We want to expand the base, and our base is primary, and I guess it's, I mean, you could have probably gone into more details, but I'm sure they're looking at the demographics and they know that the overwhelming percentage of the people that are going to their particular museum are, in this case, probably white. He doesn't want that. He wants more persons of color coming in. So he's looking for somebody that can say, hey, I'm, I'm going to attract more, more people of color. I want a more diverse thing. But at the same time, I'm looking for somebody who also appreciates that we can't alienate what our core audience is. And, and he identifies that. And so I guess I understand maybe people are sensitive about this and he could have left that word out of the job description. But at some point in time, when you're when you're having the job interview, if that is the reality, look, here's the problem. Our our audience is 95 percent or whatever it is. It's 95 percent, you know, white people over the age of 55 for the sake of argument. I want to expand that. I want you to figure out a way to bring in a more diverse audience. That's your mission. But at the same time, we, we can't alienate that, that core group, the people that are paying the freight. Can, can we not even say that anymore? If that is, in fact, the, the reality. I mean, I, I guess I look at this thing, and I think this guy was going into it with the very best of, of intentions, saying, I, I want I want more diversity. I want to bring in a broader range of people. And, and could you have done it without putting the word white in the ad? Yeah. But at some point in time, that's what he was saying. That, that That's what he would have been saying to the different candidates. That's what the mission was. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Maggie in Milwaukee. Maggie, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Uh, the two things I wanted to say was, first, what I think is problematic about what he's saying isn't that he shouldn't be applauded for saying, let's, you know, broaden Diversify, the base. right. But what he's, diversify the base. What he's saying is that we need to be sure that we make our white donors comfortable. And fundamentally, that's not the point of art. As a first point, art isn't there to make people comfortable. It's to be thought provoking. And in this day and age to say, well, gee whiz, we got to be sure that the white folks are comfortable is additionally problematic. My second point would simply be this. But, but let me stop you there for, for the, but, 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 but let me stop. No, but let me stop. Point. No, but let me then I'll okay. just make a point. But, but if like he, he's trying to find, he's trying to bring in an art director. He's trying to bring in somebody who's going to diversify the crowd. It, it's, this isn't, this is about money and dollars and keeping the doors open. It's not about, gee, let's, let's bring in somebody who's going to alienate, potentially alienate, you know, a portion of the audience that's been paying the bills. I mean, at, at some point in time, I, I understand what you're saying about the purpose of, of, of art to be challenging and things like that. But if nobody comes, you're, you're, the, the door shut down. I mean, he's, he's the director. I, I totally agree with you, Jeff. I totally agree with you, Jeff. What it's setting up is a false or. It's assuming that you can't be provocative and ask people to be uncomfortable and still not alienate folks. And it's that otherizing of people that I think folks are reacting to so strongly. And this gets to my second point, if, if you would allow. And that is this. If you say that my objective is to broaden the base, which is by implication saying, I want to, you know, encourage and make this a welcoming place mm -hmm. for different kinds of people. The very philosophy behind the ad, the very language of the ad, reveals that objective to potentially be false. When you're trying to create a place that encourages a more diverse participation, attendance, also a more diverse donor group, you don't do that by preferencing one group's comfortability 
over others. That runs contrary to that purpose. So I, I, be, I believe, in my view, is that there's a bit of internal conflict in what he's saying. Well, I, I guess, I guess maybe. But then what you're saying is it is impossible. What he's, I think, saying it is that look, I, I want to bring more people in, but I don't want to alienate the people we depend on to pay the bills and. I, maybe that's an impossible objective to do, but is it wrong? Or, no, 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 no. Or... That's, that's precisely why I'm saying it sets up a false or. It presumes that you can't do one and the other at the same time. And that's the problem, I think, when we talk about race in America, is that if we're talking about being more inclusive, it presumes that we have to be alienating white folks. That is a presumption that I think we need to reject, and I think it's a false premise of the ad. I think it's why people are having such a strong reaction to it, because, again, it sets up this dynamic where well, it's o- you can only do one of these things at well, one time. Okay, if, and that's if, simply if, not true. If the word white was not in there, if it was just traditional core art, art audience, would people have had as many problems? Likely not, but the meaning is exactly the same. Right, so you don't so, think uh, your, your issue, is, you would have an issue with it regardless of the, the racial component. You just, you just don't think the guy's right in no, what no, he's no. trying when to do. No, no, no. When you say traditional audience, and if your demography is traditionally white, upper class, 50 plus, it still has a racial component. Um, that's dog whistles, right? Uh, and we need to be clear about what our language means. I think people had a more acute reaction to it because, because he of the said explicit white. use of the term white. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling me. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I understand what you're saying. And in a, in a completely theoretical sense, oh, yes, you know, art is supposed to challenge people. And, and, and we shouldn't be concerned about maintaining the traditional audience and being more diverse. And, and I get it. But for somebody who's trying to run a museum and has to figure out how we're going to pay the expenses on a monthly basis, I, I, I what the guy was trying to say is, look, I, I, I want to bring more people in, but if the idea is you're going to come in and say, let's sort of blow up everything that we've been doing that has made us successful, th- that's not what I'm trying to do. And I guess I just, if, if you're looking to expand beyond the core demographic, which is what the guy's mission was, can, can we no longer identify what the core demographic is? Because that, that's to me what this is. In, in any event, he, he's, he's now stepping down and we'll, we'll see how you move forward. But I guess it's frustrating to me that you, you can't even identify a core demographic in an effort to say, I want to be more diverse nowadays. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. See, just as as a launching point for our next conversation, a follow-up to what we just talked about. I, I think one of the things that is an impediment to us dealing with the issue of race in, in this country is the fact that we have double standards and, and we have people that pretend to be offended when they're really not. And, I mean, for example, to, to, and a number of people are making the, the point in text that they are sending, saying, okay, what if you had a museum director for the the Black History Museum or the Museum of Black Art who was looking who and and the reality was the the attendees at that particular institution let's say it was a a majority of people who were in that particular racial group and so they're looking to bring somebody in who can expand the base, bring in more patrons. And so they put in an ad saying, okay, this is a a traditional um, museum that that focuses on African-American black art. And we we want to bring somebody in who can diversify our, our crowd and at the same time maintain our traditional black art audience. 
would, would people be offended by that? Or is that just kind of the reality? Can, can you not put race into something, even if that race, even if the fact that it's, it's, that it's true, that yes, it, in my example, the attendees are persons of color represent like 90% of the people who are attending, participating in the museum and going there, and you want to expand it. And you want to be clear, hey, we, we want to continue to serve persons of color, but we also want to have a more diverse base. And so we're looking for somebody who can diversify our base and yet uh, bring in more people and yet not alienate. I, I, but I guess in our, this country nowadays, you, you can't. You, you can't even make a reference, a benign reference to race, um, even if it, it represents what you're trying to do. And I guess the irony of this guy being driven out of the job is he was trying to do what I think is the right thing. He was trying to expand the appeal of his particular museum. He was trying to bring people, more people in and turn more people on to, to art, but at the same time, not alienating the people that have been paying the bills. Can't I guess you can't do it. All right. So that's the cancel culture. Here is another example of it. Now, we talk regularly on this program about people who lose their jobs all across the board for saying things that are determined to be offensive or insensitive to certain people. I mean, the story we did the other day, the um, the woman who's uh, the supporting actor, actress on the, the Mandalorian show that, that's on Disney. You know, she, she lost her job for some tweets that, that she had sent out a, a while ago and the fact that, you know, she was, she was a conservative and people got offended by that. And, and, and that's, that, that's the way it works nowadays that, you know, if you, if you say something that somebody's going to be offended by, you, you, you end up getting canceled. All right. Well, yesterday, of course, the, the breaking media story was that, Rush Limbaugh, everybody knows who Rush Limbaugh is. Rush Limbaugh passed away at the age of 70. Rush Limbaugh was a controversial figure. He, he revamped, recreated what talk radio was. And along the way, made a lot of enemies, made a lot of money, made a lot of supporters as well. But he passed away yesterday at the age of 70. Now, I always remember... My Latin teacher, the late great Juanita Bonneman from Nicolet High School. And I, there's only, there's only two Latin phrases that I remember from four years of Latin, even though I can still read a little bit of it. One is in wino verum, which means in wine there is truth. The other one is de mortem nil nisi bonum, which essentially means speak nothing but good of the dead. And, and I've always, I, I've always tried to adopt that philosophy when, when people, you know, pass away. So Russ Limbaugh passes away yesterday. There is a woman named Christella Alonzo. As a matter of fact, I sent out a link to this. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. And right after the news that Rush Limbaugh has passed away breaks, um, she starts sending out tweets. Now, Christella Alonzo is a, a comedian. She had a, a kind of short-lived sitcom on ABC a few years ago called Christella. She... Um, uh, she's had a, a couple comedy records out. She was uh, the voice of one of the characters in uh, Cars 3, the old Pixar release. She's been on Netflix and things like that. You know, so she's a stand-up comedian. So as soon as Rush Limbaugh, shortly after the news breaks that Rush Limbaugh passes away, she, she takes to Twitter. And her tweet, the first tweet was, Happy Rush Limbaugh is dead day. I didn't even get a chance to put my tree up. Happy Rush Limbaugh is dead day. I didn't even get the chance to put my tree up. In a subsequent tweet, 
She then says, I hope hell is him having to listen to every episode of his show. All right? And she sends those tweets out, at least as of before my, my most recent checking, but before the show, no no apologies, no nothing. So my, my question is, if if you had a actor or an actress currently employed that was, I don't know, sending out similar sorts of tweets about the passing of, I don't know, some liberal icon, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example. I mean, do, do you think that person would still be employed? Do you think that they would have lost their, Netflix, their gig on, on Netflix? Do you think that they would be condemned? And I guess my question is, in this cancel culture, does it only work one way? Or because... Rush Limbaugh was a controversial conservative icon. Is, is it is it free? Can you just say, happy Rush Limbaugh is dead day. I didn't even get a chance to put my tree up. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does, does the cancel culture and the outrage only run one way? Now, I'm somebody who argues against the cancel culture from the beginning, but I look at this kind of stuff and I'm thinking, all right, where, where, where is the outrage? Who, who writes stuff like this? Who, who says stuff like this? Why, why isn't Twitter canceling this for like, like hate speech? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Did this woman cross the line? Should there be consequences? And if not, why not? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and I, I bring this up. Look, I, 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 only because of the frustrating double standard that is out there in our society nowadays and the rise of the cancel culture the idea that okay somebody can put out a, a tweet that somebody else finds offensive and immediately they lose their job boom they're they're, they're gone how dare this person say this because so and so was offended by this and, and and it's gone but then you know it only runs apparently in this country one way you have somebody who comes out with in- incredibly hateful stuff and I understand Russell Limbaugh some people loved him some people hated him him. I, I, I get all that. I, I understand it. But this idea that, oh, it, it's Rush Limbaugh is dead day. I didn't even get to put up my tree. And, and there's no blowback at all. If she would have said something like that about a, a liberal icon, you know that there would be calls to have her TV show taken off the, the air or, gee, there's no way you can give her a Netflix special. Can you have the cancel culture run both ways? Uh, here's a couple of texts before we go to the calls. Jeff, um, yeah, 100%. It's a one-way street, which is not right. You're correct. If a liberal passed on and a conservative tweet was made, something similar like that, CNN, Good Morning America, The Today Show, they would be having this as a headline, right? It would be 30 minutes on The View with all the ladies just absolutely outraged with regard to this. Um, Jeff, um what a miserable, sad, and nasty person. If you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. Um, again, remember, there, the problem is there will be no consequences. All right, somebody says, Jeff, she's a comedian. Yeah, I understand she's a comedian, but a lot of these people who are getting canceled, like the woman who was the supporting actress on The Mandalorian, she's an actress and a, a mixed martial artist. But yet her tweets are the basis to have her lose her gig and her livelihood. And this is, well, okay, she she's a comedian, and it's, it's Rush Limbaugh. So she gets what she 
deserves, I guess. Lisa in Milwaukee. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. Yes, ma'am. What do you think? So I, um, I don't know that the cancel culture would care enough to do anything about this woman. Um, the actress from The Mandalorian was actively on a highly rated show, whereas I don't know that many people have ever heard of this woman. Right until now, yeah, <laughs> until now, right. But I guess, but right. but I guess, so. the, but but is is that is I guess is that really the test? If you're, let's say, you're an obscure actor um, on on a on a show, and you you send something out like this about a a, a liberal, do, do you think? And then and then people find out about it. Do you think th- that they wouldn't cancel that person too? I mean, isn't there really a double standard when it comes to our outrage? Well, I guess we're looking at what are we canceling them from. The actress from The Mandalorian lost her job. I mean, she wasn't arrested for free speech, obviously, but, right. you know, she lost her job. Whereas this woman doesn't sound like she's, you know, actively trying to be hired by anybody. So, <laughs> really, honestly, who cares? Okay, well, thank, Well, I guess I, but I bring this up, though, as, as to, again, to demonstrate what I believe is this double standard that's out there. And it's also the, the danger that I think exists with this cancel culture now, which to me is the new blacklist that, that, that's out there. It's the, all right, if, you know, and it is interesting because, you know, in, in the 50s, it was people on the left who had alleged ties to communism, who, who found their livelihoods being taken away because, uh, again, essentially of, of their political speech and things of, of the like. And it was an awful time. It was an awful time in American history. But apparently we, we've learned nothing from that because what I think you're seeing now is is the flip side of that. And again, I don't, if this lady wants to go and, and rip and say these terrible things about Rush Limbaugh, even though he's passed away, okay, that that's fine. It's a free country of free speech. I'm just saying that, you know, when you do it the other way around, if she had, if, 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 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away, if somebody had gone and said similarly horrible things about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know very well that there would be all this outrage and there'd be all this pressure and let's, let's pull the Netflix shows and let's denounce all this stuff, but, but you don't get it when it's coming from the other side. And I guess that's, that's the frustration I have with this. Let's talk to John on the north side. Hi, John. You're on WTMJ. Yeah, all of those people that wanted um, that man fired, they must have never listened to Rush Limbaugh. He hated everybody. That was the biggest hate monger that I have. President Kennedy called people like that hate mongers. You know, I mean, I mean, he talked about dead people. Uh, he talked about black people. He hated everybody, man. Come on now. I mean, anybody, I mean I'm not going to say nothing bad about the guy as far as being dead. <laughs> but my thing is this, yes. Well, but uh, well, John, you just, John, you just, you, you just said he hated everybody, and then you said I'm not going to say anything bad about the guy. You, you, just, you know, you can't have well, it both ways. Pal. About his death, about his, uh, about, uh, about his death. You know, that's what I was speaking of. Okay. You well, know, I, I mean, but, but, you know, I hate that anybody die. But by the same token, um, this woman had free speech to say uh, about a man that deserves saying something about. I okay. mean, maybe not that. Okay, but, but is, is, is that now the, is that now the standard? Because there, there's a, okay, so maybe, maybe somebody on the other side of the political aisle says, hey, I'm, I'm gonna rip somebody on the left and, and they deserve to have me say this about them. I mean, is that, is that now the test? See, I, I, if, I'm just saying that if, 
if we're going to say you should be able to say anything you want about anybody that within the bounds of like libel and all that stuff, that that's fine. I just see this as a as a one way street. I mean, it it should apply to both well, sides. Well, no, he wasn't a this man. This man got rich off of hate mongers and people like the Ku Klux Klan and people like that that loved the the dwell on on anything negative about somebody black or about somebody. You know, I I, I just don't understand. Why people don't understand this? They must haven't listened to Rush Limbaugh's shows. I mean, the man would would get on there and just real people, man. I, well, I don't maybe, see how he could have said. Well, I get. I mean, yeah, John, I'm not going to look, John. I, thanks for look. I'm. I, I, maybe they were listening to my show because for twenty some years my show ran in the same against time slot that, that Limbaugh's did. Maybe people were listening to my show, but look, I, I, that's that, that's that's not the point. I, I don't I don't choose to debate. Whether or not Rush Limbaugh was a good man or a bad man, I don't choose to debate whether or not the stuff he did was over the top. Because, there's, like I said, there's people who loved him, there's people who hated him, but the man is now dead. My only point is that these these hateful remarks, I, it's, to me, this is kind of the situational ethics. It, it's okay to say these horrible things about Rush Limbaugh because, well, you know, we – in our view, that would be the view of the, this woman and others. We we think he was a hateful man. He think we think he was an awful man. So we can say anything we want. The flip side, if somebody were to say, "Gee, I think I think Ted Kennedy was an awful, horrible person." This would be an example here. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna say all these bad things. You know, in this cancel culture now, how dare you say that type of stuff? And there would be outrage. My point is, if we're going to have a cancel culture, it has to run both ways. Or maybe. Maybe the larger point is maybe we need to get away from the cancel culture and represent, recognize that we do have this thing called free speech in this country and that just because somebody says something that somebody else gets offended by, maybe that shouldn't cost them their, their job. But if we're going to have the cancel culture, it seems to me it needs to run both ways. If you want to see more about the statement and some of the other celebrities that decided that they wanted to weigh in, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got the list up there. Back with more in just a minute. And this is Jeff Wagner. Every 15 minutes, a baby is born with a congenital heart defect all this month. Please join our very own Greg Matzik as he teams up with the Children's Heart Foundation to help advance the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of congenital heart defects. To find out how you can help, go to WTMJ.com or text the word CARES to the Accident Mortgage Talk text line at 855-616-1620. WTMJ CARES, powered by Watry Industries and Premier Aluminum and sponsored by Professional Construction, Inc. Just to kind of put a bow on our our, our last topic. Matter of fact, I was talking to somebody who made the point that you know everybody thinks they have a right not to be offended, and that's and and, and, and you know the bottom line that with free speech is pe- people are people are going to be offended. That is that is the nature of it. And what I think you're seeing now is you're seeing this this I'm offended being weaponized is, is the thing. Oh, I, I don't like this person's politics, and so they put out this tweet, and 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 I don't like the way they're thinking. So now I, I we've got to lash out. And of course, in the age of the internet and the you know the the different petitions, the change.org thing, what what you can do, it's easy to mobilize people who are either legitimately offended or feel they should be offended or just have too much time on their hands. And so the idea is here we're. We're going to lash out at people and we're going to try to force people out of their livelihoods or we're going to try to publicly shame people and things like that. And that's all well and good. But the problem is, where do you draw the line with this? And 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 
how do you decide exactly who should be canceled and who shouldn't be canceled? And it's a real slippery slope. And like I say, I, I see these stories on a daily basis, and I see the double standard. I see what I think is the new McCarthyism that is out there, and I don't think it's good for this country. All right, when we come back, Nikki Haley has a really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal. If you want to get a head start on it, I've got it. I sent it on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Um, I'm going to share it with you, and then we're going to discuss. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. One of the things, I've been doing a radio show in this market full or part-time for, well, over 25 years. Eric Bilstad, oh, you've been here, for, you've been you've been in radio for over 25 years, uh, right? Yeah, started when I was 18 in Des Moines, made it here, so yeah, it's been about 20 years since I've been here. I... I I started doing radio in Milwaukee part-time in 95 and started here full-time in 98. It's, it's amazing how we're time for how time got. Oh, my God. It's, it's just, yeah, it just, it just, well, I, obviously, obviously, you and I have both fooled enough people that, you know, that, that, that you know, we've been able to keep getting paid right, for yeah. doing something that we love doing Whew, for all this time. Right. Yeah, we, who says you can't fool some of the people all the time, huh? But, but, but it's been interesting to, to me to see the, the changes in the way what I do has evolved, and, and part of it is the 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 internet, of course, cha- completely changed access to information and the way you research shows. Um, I think a big thing for our format was was car phones, and I know this sounds silly because now everybody everybody's got cell phones yep. and stuff. But there was a a time where. Uh, the, the people that called into to talk shows were, were were people that were home, you know, because people at work didn't have access mm-hmm. to it. And then you had car phones, and then all of a sudden you got this whole different audience that was out there because people were driving between appointments, and they could listen, they could pick up the phone yeah, and call. Yeah. And, and now you've had the advent of the Internet, and you've got the ability to, to text in. So in any given show, you know, I, I will get – several hundred texts from people who just use it as a way to respond and mm-hmm. in the way you communicate it's just kind of completely changed over the years yeah 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 it's kind of remarkable but one of the other things that that has has changed is the fact that there, there there's no nuance i guess in 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 america nowadays when it comes to Thought. And by that I mean, it, it seems unfortunate that you, you've got, it's got to be all in. It's got to be black or white. And I'm not talking about from a racial perspective. It's got to be, I hate Scott Walker. I hate everything Scott Walker has done. And, and you, you can't say, well, okay, well, you know, what about this? No, I, I don't like it because it's Scott Walker that did it. I hate Barack Obama because, you know, I, I just despise Barack Obama. I despise George Bush. Well, what about this? Well, oh, no, I, I hate it because it was Bush that did it. When the truth is, if Obama had done it, it, it would be fine. It's kind of that that sort of double standard. And, and it, it it's gotten worse, the the idea that there there can't be any sort of Nuance. Um, I got it. This is how my day started off. I was just I was checking my email this morning. I have a a um, email from somebody. I uh, didn't sign their name uh, to Jeff Wagner. Trump wants to get rid of rhinos like Romney and Collins and Washington establishment swamp creatures like McConnell. I'm with him. Sounds like you want to take over the mantle of Wisconsin's number one rhino from Charlie Sykes. Okay, it's like, and you know, we, we've talked about this before. But you know, Rhino is, of course, Republican in, in name only, and and the idea is in, in 
and, and believe me, I, I get a lot, a lot of text messages and emails saying, oh, my, my gosh, you know, you're just you're just this Republican conservative stooge. How how there how I can't believe they let you on the air for as long as you've been on the air. And then I get the flip side. I get stuff like this going, oh, my, you're just nothing but a rhino. Go work for MSNBC. You're, you're nothing but a rhino. And, and the frustrating thing to me is that that people you, you either whatever side you're on, you, 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 you got to drink the Kool-Aid and and you can't. You can't see things as as flawed. You can't look at, at Joe Biden and say, "Boy, I, I mean, I, I I think he's dead wrong on all these different policy initiatives." Oh, you you're just you know you're just a Republican hater. And and the same thing has been true for the last few years with with President Trump. It, it's either former President Trump. It, it's either you buy into everything the guy did. Um, or, or you're, you're a rhino. You're a Republican in name only, which I, I have completely rejected that over the last several years. And I just, I think we're, we're getting into a bad space in this country where if that's it, it's just like, okay, if you're a Democrat, you're evil. If you're a Republican, you're evil. And there's, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today, and I, I sent out, if you want to read it in its entirety, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. But it, it's, it's by Nikki Haley, and I, I am a fan of Nikki Haley. She was the former governor of South Carolina. She was, um, the UN ambassador under Trump until she resigned. She is one of, I think, the leading candidates for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. And, and she's come under a lot of criticism recently because she denounced a number of the things that Donald Trump did after the election. And, oh, you're nothing but you're, you're nothing but a rhino. This is terrible. She's got a piece in the Wall Street Journal, and I want to share a portion of it with you, not the whole thing, but I want to share a portion of it with you. And then I, I want to use this as a launching point for, for a conversation because I think she's on to something. All right, the headline of the story is, Media Tries to Divide Republicans. This is Nikki Haley. Where does the Republican Party go from here? The party that abolished slavery, won the right to vote for women, and beat Soviet communism must continue to be strong and principled to move American forward. But the liberal media doesn't care about that. It wants to stoke a nonstop Republican civil war. The media playbook starts with the demand that everyone pick sides about Donald Trump. And by the way, I don't know, it's just the media that does this. Everyone picks sides about Donald Trump. Everyone either love or hate everything about him. The moment anyone on the right offers the slightest criticism of the 45th president, the media goes berserk. Republicans are trying to have it both ways. It's a calculated strategy to pit conservatives against one another. It's also a ridiculous false choice. Real life is never that simple. Someone can do both good and bad things. People feel strongly about Mr. Trump, but we can acknowledge reality. People on the left, if they're honest, can find Trump accomplishments they like. A coronavirus vaccine in record time, Middle East peace, more accountability from China. People on the right can find fault with Trump, with Trump's actions, including on January 6th. Right or left, when people make these distinctions, they're not trying to have it both ways. They're just using their brains. 
Just as important, they're proving people are more than their party affiliations. If we can't make judgments beyond whether someone is Republican or Democrat, then America can't face its biggest challenges. We separate into two camps that always hate each other. We become estranged from family and friends over politics. Is that really what the anti-Trump media wants? Maybe. Hatred and polarization draws attention, ratings, and clicks. But what's good for them is bad for America. Some never-Trump and always-Trump Republicans also attack anyone who doesn't join their all-or-nothing chorus. Trust me, look at my texts and emails on a given day. You'll see that. Um, Republicans also attack anyone who doesn't join the all-or-nothing chorus. That's not how I saw Mr. Trump's conduct conduct himself when I worked for him in the White House, where he engaged in internal debates, welcomed disagreements, and at times changed his mind. If the media gets its way, the GOP will dissolve into endless warfare, ensuring extreme liberal government for years to come. Instead, Republicans need to be honest about what worked and what didn't work over the past four years. And and then it goes on to talk about embracing, you know, the good stuff and being willing to criticize the, the bad stuff. President Trump's record and, and criticizing his conduct isn't having it both ways. It's simply common sense. Okay, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I was reading this, and I'm saying, you know, this is what I've been trying to say for four years. This idea that we hate Scott Walker. And Scott Walker is evil. doesn't matter what he did. He's, he's evil, evil, evil. And we've got to do anything we can to get rid of the Scott Walker legacy. We hate Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson is evil, evil, evil. And we have to get rid of the Ron Johnson legacy. Or on the flip side, you know, Walker didn't make any mistakes. Or Trump didn't make any mistakes. I, it is frustrating to me that we have this, this dialogue. And to me, again, starting with President Trump, I, I, I'm with her. I think... That, you know, praising some of the stuff that he did. And over the last four years when he was in office, if you were a regular listener to this show, I took heat from both sides because when he did stuff that was right, I said, I think this is right. And then I'd get, oh, this is just terrible. You're nothing but a Republican stooge. And when he did stuff that was wrong, you, you criticized him. I don't think it's wrong at all to say, hey, I, I think his policy on China worked out. And at the same time, say, you know, his behavior after the election was absolutely appalling and destroyed his legacy. Is it impossible nowadays to to recognize that there there are both sides that are out there and that we do not live in an absolute world of on the issues, black and white, and that for most stuff, it's gray or or is our just hatred and our tribalism is are we ever going to be able to overcome that? And I I will tell you, I I sincerely wonder about that. And I, I. Bring this on both sides. Gee, Jeff, you're a rhino. You're Wisconsin's number one rhino because you didn't drink all the Trump Kool-Aid and you had the audacity to suggest that, gee, maybe maybe the election really wasn't stolen and we're going on the crazy train for this. 855-616-1620. Let's start, before we take a break, let's start with Keith in Germantown. Keith, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Yeah, I've been involved with the Republican Party for pretty much my whole life. Um, I sat front row for uh, Scott Walker's nomination from the Republican Party. I voted for him three times. Unfortunately, I didn't vote for him the last time. I had a few issues with um, the DNR, um, a number of reasons, but because I didn't vote for him the last time, um, I'm no longer a Republican. Um, And because I didn't vote for Trump, I'm no longer a Republican. And I find it hard when you're not... It seems as if 
you, if you're not swimming in the pool of Kool-Aid, you're <laughs> not a Republican anymore. And it's just kind of frustrating to even have a conversation amongst Republicans. I mean, I, <clears throat> I've seen the de-evolution of the discourse and not only politics, but amongst Republicans, you know, starting kind of in the late 90s. And then it really went off the rails when Barack Obama became president. And uh, I would personally was surprised that Trump even got the nomination Mm -hmm. from the uh, Republican Party for a list of reasons, Um, you know, his values amongst a number of character issues. Absolutely. Character issues. Let's be honest. Yeah. I and there's a lot of the things that are bolstered about him were either I, I it's just it's phenomenal to me. And instead of moving on and trying to recognize the things within our party, you know, and that's another thing is, you know, being called a rhino, it almost feels as if it's more or less not. We're actually the Republicans and letting when the Tea Party happened, you know, we let in. We're like, well, they're not exactly with us, but their votes and stuff. Well, now that's the whole party has been taken over by this whole well, well, maybe, or, or maybe it's just a loud fringe. I, I don't know. Thanks to call. I mean, and, and I mean, look, and, and see it on the left too. I mean, I remember the, the eight years of President Bush, George Bush. Okay, um, you know, but before Obama, I mean, the, the hatred that was coming from the left. And again, I, I, I understand that people forget about these things or know this wasn't there. The hatred that was directed at, at President Bush during those, those years. Oh, this is just, just terrible. And it was the same sort of thing. It was that kind of tribalization. And, and you'd say, well, okay. You know, look, look at this particular policy. I can't stand it. And then yet when Barack Obama comes in and continues that policy, for example, it's like, oh, this is great because it's Barack Obama. We're, we're losing the ability to be able to analyze stuff and, and recognize that, OK, you, you can you can disagree with some people on you can disagree with a political figure on certain issues. You can say, hey, I can't believe what Trump was doing after this election stuff. I mean, we, we went down. You can criticize the behavior on January 6th without and still consider consistently say, hey, I, I like this tax policy or whatever. Back with more of your calls in just a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. Let's talk to Peter in Delavan. Peter, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Thanks for calling. What I wanted to say is I do also agree with Nikki that sometimes it is the media that... Um, uh, feeds off of this. They realize, especially the national guys, or no, it, it's it's it sells uh, it sells newspapers. The New York Times. I'll, I'll let you finish your point. But the, your the New York Times during the Trump year, the number of online subscriptions went through the roof because they set themselves up to be the anti-Trump newspaper, and so that's why the coverage was relentlessly negative. The reporters loathed him, and the people that loathed. Trump, they, they, they subscribe because it, it fed into, you know, what it fed into what they wanted to hear. So you're right. It, it's I mean, the media is complicit in this. But in my personal, I voted for Trump because I liked his his policies. Mm-hmm. I just didn't like the man, the way he went 
you know, goofy after the election and the 3 a.m. tweets and things like that. But I still voted for him because his policies I felt were sound. Right. And I don't think that and I guess that's Nikki Haley's point, too. I don't find that to be inconsistent, Peter. You can you can I, I think it's common. You can look at a bunch of politicians and Trump being the most recent one. And you can say, look, I I didn't like the guy's character. I didn't like the the crazy tweets. I didn't like the chaos theory. I didn't like what he said about John McCain. I didn't like the nicknames. I didn't like the punching down. I didn't like the the brash attitude. I didn't like the treatment of women. You can say all that, but still at the same time say, I like the guy's policies. I thought he would as a superior choice to Hillary Clinton. Now, that you can say that. You know, you you can have a nuanced opinion without you you being evil or stupid or whatever. It's 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 a nuanced opinion. I also think that a lot of people don't do their research. They let someone, maybe a friend or the media, I don't know, you know, form their opinion for something and then run with it. Well, well, right. Or, thanks. Or, or there's just a lot of knee jerk stuff. I, I think that's the other thing that you see out there. It's OK. I, I'm on this side of the aisle. So I, I have to drink all the Kool-Aid and, and all my friends say this. And so we're just all th- this guy, this guy or this gal is evil or, you know, we're on the other side of the aisle and that person I- is evil. There, there's no th- there's no sense of nuance anymore. And this idea that, OK, well, you're a Republican in name only if you don't want to go down the rabbit hole that is the election is stolen. No, thanks. I, I, d- I don't want to I don't want to be that or the idea that. Gosh, unless you buy into all of this, how how dare you how dare you criticize Tony Evers for this particular thing? You're just this awful Republican. Well, maybe Evers would be wrong or was wrong on this particular thing. Maybe maybe the vaccine rollout has been appalling in the state of Wisconsin, and maybe there's a lot of criticism to go around. Just saying. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. In the aftermath of the election, we, we, we talked a, a lot about ways to improve the election, and I know I have infuriated some of you by by not buying into the notion that the election was stolen. But at the same time, I remember we were talking about this. I had one guy called up and said, well, there, there's nothing that we could do that would be better. It, it was just perfect. And and that's that's crazy, too. I mean, I think you you always need to look at the elections and to say, okay, what what can we do better moving forward? Now, in Wisconsin, one of the things that I, I think Republicans and Democrats should agree, be able to agree on, as a matter of fact, it was one of the things that was included in the, one of the proposals that, that Tony Evers floated was the idea of letting clerks start to count absentee ballots or before election day and i don't mean like tabulate them but i mean open up the envelopes put the ballots run them into the machine you know you don't hit the button that says how were the votes counted but just get them out of the envelopes and get them counted which especially in some of the larger communities like milwaukee for example would would mean that we'd be getting the results more in real time instead of people go to bed at 10 o'clock thinking or 11 o'clock thinking one candidate's ahead and then at four in the morning all of a sudden mysteriously you know 200,000 ballots get added to Milwaukee's total and, and it shifts it and and there's not fraud involved with it it's just 
the, the election laws right now say these absentee ballots can't begin to be put into the machine until election day. And at that point in time, you've got all the other stuff that's going on. In my opinion, there's no reason at all why you can't allow clerks to start Again, feeding those ballots into the machine. I'm not talking about tabulating them. I'm not talking about knowing, you know, what the count is other than just feeding them in so you, you can get the results in a more timely fashion. And if you talk to clerks all across the state, um, particularly some of the clerks from some of the, the smaller districts where there, there's, you, you don't have an army of people that are working at City Hall, like maybe in Madison or Milwaukee, they'll, they'll tell you this would just make their life so much easier. And I understand there's some people that have concerns. Oh, would there be fraud here? You, you, you can work it out. You, you, you could provide enough safeguards, in my opinion, you know, whether it's people that are watching or whatever, just the process of feeding the ballots in. It, you, you, you could develop the safeguards so we, we didn't have these, like, last-minute ballot dumps that caused some people to think, oh, maybe, maybe this, there's something funny going on with the election. It would just make life easier for everybody. And, and so Evers has presented that. I think there's a lot of Republicans who are down with the idea. I would be. I would be as well. It just it makes sense. There's something, though, that, that Governor Evers has floated that I think does not make sense. And matter of fact, I think it, it's just staggering for its effort to completely and totally, I think, try to impact the Wisconsin political system to benefit Evers's political party. One of the proposals he's let come out with is he wants to do away with the state requirement that in-person early voting, you know, the in-person early voting beforehand. He wants to do away with the requirement that it not commence more than two weeks before the election. This would be an awful decision. Now, let's review the, the bidding on this. You know, in Wisconsin, you can request an absentee ballot and you can vote by mail. We, we all know that. And lots and lots of people voted by mail. I know some people have heartache with this and, and don't like it. But the truth is, voting by mail is not going to go away. That That's just... That's just the reality. And so I think from the perspective of the political parties, they need to figure out how they can best take advantage of the fact that you've got voting by mail. And and when I say with voting by mail, there, there might be things that you can do to, I, I don't know, assure election integrity if you have that issue. But voting by mail isn't going to go away. Then you have the early in-person voting. And this is how I voted the last several times. You know, the ones where you go physically to City Hall, you go in, you request the ballot, you fill it out, you put it in the envelope, and you drop it off. You voted in person. In Wisconsin, the law right now is it doesn't matter what community you are in. You cannot start the in-person early voting until two weeks before the election. Evers wants to do away with that requirement. He wants to allow individual municipalities to decide when they are going to start opening early in-person voting. So, for example, here's what the effect of this would be. In a community like Madison or Milwaukee that tends, for example, to be heavily Democratic, the people at City Hall, where you have a large number of employees, for example, they could say, Let's say what they could say is, all right, we're going to open our polling places for the in-person voting. We're going to start doing it 
four weeks ahead of time because we've got the staff. We can handle this. So people can come in and they can cast their ballots in person up to four weeks ahead of the election. Whereas a smaller community, maybe a community that, that only has a clerk of courts and, and, and one other employee that doesn't have the resources to open their offices for that period of time, they say, hey, look, we're, we're only going to be able to do this, you know, a, a two weeks before the election. Giving an inherent advantage to those communities that have the resources and also would tend to be, again, some of the larger cities. So, the people, if you lived in Milwaukee, city of Milwaukee, for example, you could go in and you could early in person vote four weeks ahead of the election, in my example, whereas other people might only be able to do it two weeks. That's what Evers wants. He wants to give the discretion to the local municipalities, knowing that the ones in the bigger cities that tend to be Democrat, that have more resources, knowing full well that that will help juice the vote for in those different communities. Now, I'm not against, you know, people trying to get people to turn out to vote. I, I'm, I'm not. I think it's I think it's good. I think political parties need to figure out how to craft messages and then how to get their parties to the polls. At the same time, there needs to be standardization for statewide elections. Imagine a situation where, let's take a Republican district like Waukesha, and let's say Waukesha decided on election day, you know what? We want to open our polls at 5 in the morning, and we want to leave them open till 10 o'clock at night. Meanwhile, you have Madison that says, well, no, we're, we're only going to open ours at 7, and we're going to close at 8. Well, people would be screaming bloody murder. How can you allow voters in Waukesha to have a few more hours to go to the polls? This, to me, is the same point. You need to have standardization. How can you allow on a catch uh, for a statewide election on a, you know, uh, allow the city of Milwaukee to say, we're going to let people come into City Hall and vote for four weeks ahead of time, whereas, again, a smaller community, Wanakee, says we don't have the resources to do that. It's going to be two weeks. So if you live in the city of Milwaukee, you have two more weeks to be able to go in and cast your ballot, in my example. That's wrong. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Whatever that time limit is, and I don't think two weeks is unreasonable, by the way, but it, it needs to be standardized, my opinion, across the state, as opposed to, well, Milwaukee can do their thing, Madison can do their thing, the smaller communities, well, maybe you're going to be, you know, just out of luck. Bottom line is it needs to be standardized, just like the polls on Election Day. They're open from, what, 7 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night. That is standard. Evers wants to do away with that aspect. He wants to say to Madison or Milwaukee, or admittedly other communities as well, but they don't have the resources. This is a way of keeping polls open for weeks earlier than they will be across the rest of the state, and I think it's wrong. 855-616-1620. It's not going anywhere, I don't think, in the leg. I'm sure it's not going anywhere in the legislature, but I, I... as far as election reform, letting them count the ballots early makes sense. Giving individual municipalities the discretion to open the polling places weeks before other municipalities, to me, that's wrong. And everybody should know it. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. All right, here's a text. Municipalities are different. Well, yeah, yes, but there has to be standardization among um, across the state. If it is a statewide election, why should voters in Milwaukee or Madison 
have a greater access to the polls, more opportunities to go in and vote in person than somebody who lives in La Crosse or, or Shawano or some small community in, in Door County. Yet municipalities are different, but if it's going to be an election, a standardized election, you, it seems to me you cannot give advantages to people that live in the predominantly urban areas. And let's be honest, Tony Evers understands that for Democrats to win statewide in Wisconsin, you need to rack up huge margins in Dane County and Milwaukee County. That's just the reality. And then kind of hold on through through the rest of the state. And if you think that this idea of, gee, let's change this because we know that the clerk's offices in Milwaukee and Dane County, we know that they will be open as long as they can, um, for for this, if you think that there's not a political component to this, well, okay, kind of duck your shoulder so you don't hurt yourself when you fall off the turnip truck. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, since Evers is for it, I'm in. If it was Voss's idea, I'd hate it. Just joking. Going back to the previous topic. Yeah, that's, that, that's, um, you know, that's it. Um, Jeff, smaller communities have less people and probably are not waiting in line to vote for hours like people in larger cities do. Well, y- yes and no. I, it, it all depends. And yes, smaller communities have less people, but those smaller communities also have smaller clerk's offices and things like that. Again, I, I, it's got to be standardized. You can't have, for a statewide election, you can't have different rules. Now, if you wanted to have different rules in a local election, if you wanted to say, hey, um, for the mayor of Milwaukee, where you're you're only voting in an election, well, it's it's kind of difficult because almost always on the ballot, it's not just going to be like a, a countywide election or a citywide election. But if if you if for the sake of argument you had an election where it was only city elections, you know, city things on the ballot, and you wanted to have maybe a different rule for the city of Milwaukee than you do for the city of Waukesha, I. I understand that because at least in that situation, what you'd have is people playing by the same rules all across the, the way. Um, that's, that's the idea. It, all the voters in a particular election, in a particular venue, needed to, need to be treated equally. They need to have, at least in my opinion, equal access to be able to go out and, and vote. And again, I, I get the whole idea of the early voting thing in person, and I also understand the mail-in voting. And that's why that's a standardized thing as well. I mean, that's kind of governed by the states with regard to, you know, when you can get the ballots and when you can send them in. So that's okay. That, that's all right with me. I just want to make sure that the voter in Waukesha has the same opportunities and the same time frame to vote as the voter in Dane County, as the voter in Adams County, as the voter anywhere. For a statewide election, everybody should have the same access to the polls. And for me, that means, okay, the polls are going to be open for the same time. Jeff, wouldn't your logic hold for national elections, presidents standardized for all states to follow the same rules? Well, my logic would would hold because yeah i i think one of the big problems and one of the things that led to some of the uncertainty and, and again i i don't think the election was stolen i'm not going down that route but but one of the things that led to the national uncertainty was the idea that you had different rules that you had the state of north carolina 
that would allow absentee ballots to come in as long as they were postmarked on, on the day of the election, whereas other states said that it had to be received. Wisconsin, you know, it had to be received by, by 8 o'clock by the time the polls closed. Yes, I think those variations, the state-by-state rules, led to some of the concerns and some of the heartbreak and some of the, the grief that some people had. And, and yes, I think in a perfect world for national elections, it, it should be standardized. Now, the problem with that is that's not the way the Constitution sets it up. The Constitution, even for the office of president, allows the states to set their own rules, you know, within a couple boundaries. So the states can have different rules with regard to how ballots for president are going to be counted, even though it's true. That's my logic, even though I think it should be standardized. But there's nothing you can do about that because that's the way our founding fathers set it up with the Constitution, short of a constitutional change. That doesn't mean it's good policy, though, and it certainly doesn't mean that in the state of Wisconsin you would have to change state law to give the city of Milwaukee the opportunity to keep its polling places um, to open its polling places two weeks before they, they do in Washahara County. But, but yeah, I agree. I, I think a standardized presidential election would be better. Same rules applying to everybody who's voting in that election. That's a matter of changing the Constitution, though, not doing in Wisconsin, changing the laws from where they exist now to make Tony Evers happy. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. <laughs> And this is Jeff Wagner. The largest vaccine rollout of our time is underway as we aim to put the COVID-19 pandemic in our collective rearview mirror. Join John McCure next Thursday. That would be a week from today, February 25th at 4 o'clock for a special WTMJ roundtable, Vax Facts. He'll be joined by Dr. John Raymond of the Medical College of Wisconsin to help answer your questions about the vaccine. Want to hear your question read on the air? Well, give us a call, 414-203-8105. That's, of course, a different number than our text line, 414-203-8105. And don't forget to join us at 4 o'clock next Thursday, February 25th, for a special WTMJ roundtable, VaxFax, sponsored by Dave Camp Heating. All right, it's my favorite text of the day. Came in. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that the governor's decision to try to allow places like Madison and Milwaukee to allow people to vote two weeks before other places is politically motivated, a bad idea. Jeff, the governor needs to govern, not just do what you want him to do. <laughs> well, here, here's my, my comment to that, is, is that maybe if Governor Evers listened more to me, he'd, he'd do a better job of governing, for example. I mean, does anybody think, for example, this vaccine rollout that the state had, well, the, the better part of nine or ten months to figure out how it was going to get distributed? Anybody think that the state's doing a good job of, of that? You know, I, I had some ideas months ago, months ago. Maybe, maybe if we could have figured that out, we wouldn't have... 95-year-old men calling my show yesterday talking about how they've been trying desperately to get a vaccination and they just can't figure out how to do it. It's just not available. I mean, it's just, I don't know, maybe sometimes the governor should listen to, I don't know, some of these other ideas as opposed to, I don't know, just, you know, he's going to do it his way, whether his way makes sense or not. Okay, when we come back in the next hour of the program, hey, what happens when government tells businesses how much they have to pay employees? We will discuss that. Animals on airplanes, and maybe why do we keep watching the same things over and over again? All that's coming up in the 2 o'clock hour. Don't go anywhere. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It's, it, it's, it is probably not an example of the biggest screw-up with regard to the vaccination rollout, but it's definitely probably in the top ten. And whenever we've talked about all the failures, inevitably one of the examples is we'll get calls and texts from people who live in Washington and Ozaki County in our, in our listening area. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure this was well-intentioned. But you would have thought that somebody would have realized this is not a good idea. It's not working. And maybe we should do what they have now done, which is bail on the idea. Washington and Ozaki County, what they, what they were doing is they, they had a link for people to sign up for, for the vaccines. And, the, but the only way you could access the link was to go to it at 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. And kind of you, you could get there and you kind of got, got into this queue but, but uh, over the Internet, but nobody knew who was first or whatever. And then at 10 o'clock, it's like they, they open the gates and everybody tries to, you know, try to reserve a time. And what ends up happening is very few people are able to get through. And it was just one of these examples where it was incredibly frustrating because you had all these people who would go there. OK, this is my public health agency. They're, they're going to be taking care of me here. I'm in line. I'm here. I, I, I'm ready to go. Ten o'clock. I hit the button. And then all of a sudden the thing just spins and spins and spins. And then next thing you know, you're disconnected. A complete and total failure. Well, Ozaki, Washington County is recognizing that it was a complete and total failure and that th- this electronic health sign-up thing wasn't working. So what they're saying is they are now doing away with the um, distrib- with the vaccine sign-up link. And, and their story is, well, it, we, we would get like 200 doses. We have our link live at 10 o'clock Monday morning, and then um, within 60 seconds, all 200 spots fill up. Kind of like if you're trying to get, you know, tickets to a Rolling Stones concert back in the 90s, you know, you're online with Ticketmaster and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and the thing opens up at 10 o'clock and you hit that button and the next thing you know, you find that all the tickets are gone. Um, well, except this isn't Rolling Stone tickets. This was, this was access to the vaccine, creating a, a huge, huge problem. And they're, they're saying, well, we just didn't have enough vaccine to make this work. And that, that might very well be the case. But what that means is, Maybe you needed to come up with the plan B or the plan C a long time before this instead of experiencing or causing hundreds or thousands of people to go through this frustration week after week. But in any event, I, I don't know how they're going to distribute the vaccine they get, but they're no longer going to go through this kabuki dance of we're going to try to get people to go on the website because it just didn't work. In the area of COVID, though, and, and I understand all we hear is is gloom and, and doom, and you hear you know, the president saying, well, I think people are going to need to wear masks until next year. And you have Anthony Fauci, who I, I am I am not as critical of him as some people, nor do have I have I been drinking the Kool-Aid that thinks that, that everything he says is right, because he, he says different stuff every couple of weeks. And, and I appreciate that that things change and that, you know, you just because you might think something is the case at one point in time, doesn't mean it can't change. That's how I look at the masks. I, I know the CDC, we, we were told you don't need to wear masks, but then they, they looked at the way, you know, coronavirus spread, and people said, okay, well, you should wear masks. Well, I, I appreciate that, you know, you, you can change your opinions. seems to me that, that Dr. Fauci changes his opinions kind of 
um, with, with the wind and depending on who he's talking to and, and whatever. But but in general, we've been hearing a lot of gloom and doom, you know, but there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today. And I wanted to share a portion of it with you because it. it if the author of this is right, and, and nobody knows, I, I get it, but maybe maybe things are, are better than we might think and will be better sooner, and it'll be good news for the summer. Here's the opinion piece. It's written by a guy named Marty Markari, who, and he says, we'll have herd immunity by April. COVID cases have dropped 77% in six weeks. Experts should level with the public about the good news. And let me just share a portion of this with you. Amid the dire COVID warnings, one crucial fact has been largely ignored. Cases are down 77% over the past six weeks. If a medication slashed cases by 77%, we'd call it a miracle pill. Why is the number of cases plummeting much faster than experts predicted? In large part, because of natural immunity from prior infection is far more common than can be measured by testing. Testing has been capturing only from 10 to 25 percent of infections, depending on when during the pandemic somebody got the virus. Applying a time-weighted case capture average of 1 in 6.5 to the cumulative 28 million confirmed cases would mean about 55 percent of Americans have natural immunity. Now, now that, that's an interesting idea that you don't hear talked about a lot, but the, the bottom line is that, that, that there's a, a good segment of the population under this theory that, that is naturally immune from this, so that they're not likely to get it. Now, then it continues, add people getting vaccinated. As of this week, 15% of Americans had received the vaccine, and the figure is rising fast. Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, he's controversial himself, estimates... 250 million doses will have been delivered to some 150 million people by the end of March. There is reason to think the country is racing towards an extremely low level of infection. As more people have been infected, most of whom have mild or no symptoms, there are fewer Americans left to be infected. At the current trajectory, I expect COVID will mostly be gone by April, allowing Americans to resume a normal life. Antibody studies almost certainly underestimate natural immunity. Antibody testing doesn't capture antigen-specific T-cells, which develop memory once they are activated by the virus. Um, survivors of the 1980 Spanish flu, 1918 Spanish flu, were found in 2008, 90 years later, to have memory cells still able to produce neutralizing antibodies. So what, what this guy is saying is that the number of cases are down dramatically over the last six weeks, which is very, very good news. Why is that occurring? His theory is you've got some people that have natural immunity, you have other people who are getting the vaccines, and you have other people who maybe maybe they had it. And see, and right now, they, they don't know how long your antibodies are good for. I mean, if, you, if you've had it and you've recovered from COVID, the, the big question is, are you safe moving forward? And, and nobody knows. I, I understand right now they're saying, well, okay, we, we, we assume that people have at least 90 days immunity. But that's that's really just a guess. I, I mean, it, it might be 90 days. It, it might be 180 days. It, it, who, who knows exactly what it is? The number of people who get reinfected 
that is have COVID, recover from COVID, and then get sick again, that that's that's not a very large number. I'm not saying it's never happened, but it doesn't happen very often. And and again, they, they don't know how long the antibodies last. So if you've had it and recovered, the advice is, you know, get get the vaccination anyways when it's your turn. But you put all this stuff together and I, I mean, look, nobody knows for sure. I understand that we're in a charted water here, but we, we hear a lot of gloom and doom, and I think part of that is to encourage people to continue to do the smart stuff, socially distance, um, you know, wear your masks, all those type of things, get the vaccines when they're available, all of which I think is good advice. But I, I've been hearing a lot of this, oh, we, we don't know when this is going to end, and it's, it's going to go on and on and on, and, and maybe we don't want to give people any sort of good news because we don't want to let their guard down. And I get it. I understand why we do that. But I, I will, I'm going to tweet this out. If you follow me at Jeff Wagner 620, I'll tweet it out. And I, I, I don't know that this guy is any more, has any more insight than maybe somebody else who says, hey, we're not going to have a handle on this till next year or whatever. I, I don't know that anybody necessarily knows the answer, especially since a lot of, like I say, these scientists, they're all over the map because the data changes, the information change, they, they just bounce around. But it would, wouldn't it be nice if this is a positive news and the fact that you've got these numbers going down and more people getting vaccinated and all that stuff, wouldn't it be, if, be nice if we are a lot closer to that herd immunity that they've been talking about as our way out of this problem. If we're closer to that herd immunity by April as opposed to November or December or next year, wouldn't that be nice? Well, let me answer that. That's a rhetorical question. Yes, that would be nice. If you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner 620, I'll send out a link to this story. Don't know for sure if the guy's right, but it's some interesting food for thought moving forward and maybe paints a slightly more optimistic view than some people are giving us. Okay, when we come back, what happens when government tells businesses how much money they have to pay their employees? I'll give you a hint. It's not good. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I I got a text from a physician who says that he just treated somebody who had a a COVID reinfection. And again, I... I, I'm sure it happens. I'm, I'm not denying it, but you, you don't see large numbers of that. I'm also hearing from a number of people who had COVID last fall and have recently had the antibody tests. And for example, one of the texters just says um, they they had it in in about five months ago, just got retested, and they still have the antibody. So I again, it, it's an emerging sort of thing, and I'm I'm not suggesting that we should be letting our guard down at all. But you do look at some of these numbers that are out there, and they're they're positive. Okay. We, Joe Biden wants to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. It, it's not going to happen as part of the COVID relief bill, and I'm not sure it's going to happen in general. My point, and, and on the one hand, I understand. It, it, it's, it's nice. It is a nice thing. Let's, let's pay people more money. All right. That, that, let's give people more money. And, and wouldn't it be nice to have a $5 an hour raise? And if somebody's making 10 bucks an hour, isn't it better that they make $15 an hour? Won't their life be better? They'll have more money. And I understand that. But what people don't get about this is the fact that there's not a money tree in the back of a business that you go out and, and you shake and that, that money comes down. The money that you pay employees has to come from somewhere. And that somewhere is the employer. The employer has to come up with the dough to pay the people. And that means 
that the employer is going to have to perhaps increase their costs to the extent that they can do it, charge you, charge the consumers more for their product. But the problem with that is some, there's, there's only so much people are willing to pay. You know, I, gee, I, I'm, I'm willing to pay four bucks for that burger, but if you raise the price to $7.50, I'm not going to buy it. Okay, so you've got that issue that's going on there. So you can raise the prices, or what you can do is you can operate on reduced profits. Well, okay, maybe I don't need to make as much money. But keep in mind, we're in a pandemic. We're coming out of a pandemic, and, and you've got businesses that are closing right and left and center. I mean, you go to some communities, it looks like a ghost town. I had a friend who was walking through the Third Ward yesterday, two days ago, who was just stunned at the number of businesses that were closed and are not reopening. So it's easy to go and say to that, that business owner, here, we think you should be paying your employees more money. And this is a business owner who's struggling to figure out, you know, how to to pay the rent and to stay in business. So there is that consequence that's there as well. And again, there's not a money tree that you can end up shaking. So how does this work out in the real world? Well, in on the West Coast, particularly in Seattle, Seattle passed a citywide mandate. This only applies to the the city of Seattle that for um, stores. Um, have remained open during the pandemic. They they didn't increase the minimum wage, but they required stores to pay the workers, the essential workers who've been there, they ex, uh, required them to pay a $4 an hour hazard pay mandate, four bucks a, an hour. And so if you work at a grocery store, you know, you, you've worked through the pandemic, that's great. The city said, okay, you've got to pay the employees four bucks more an hour. All right, great. You've got these employees that they're making the money. That's great. They've got four bucks more an hour. So now they're making 15 instead of 11. Isn't their life great? Well, what happened in the real world? Kroger, and here's the story. I'll read it as they report it in the Washington Post. Grocery giant Kroger. And Kroger owns like the the pick and saves and the Metro Marts around here. Giant grocery store Kroger plans to close two stores in Seattle after the city passed a $4 an hour hazard pay mandate for grocery workers. Um, let's see. Kroger, which recorded one of the more profitable years due to strong demand during the pandemic, blamed the closures on the city's new mandate, saying it would raise costs at the two quality food centers, which were already underperforming. Unfortunately, the Seattle City Council didn't consider that grocery stores, even in a pandemic, operate on razor-thin profit margins in a very competitive landscape. When you factor in the increased cost of operating during COVID, coupled with the consistent financial losses at these locations and this extra pay mandate, it becomes impossible to operate a financially sustainable business. So what they were doing, you got these two stores in Seattle, they said, we can't afford this. We're we're losing money on these particular stores to begin with. Now you're telling us we have to pay our employees $4 more an hour. Fine, we're not going to do it. We're not in business to lose money. And we can take the losses a little bit, but by adding four bucks more an hour to the costs of, of, of our, our, our costs of work, we can't make a go of it. So what do they do? They close. So what does that mean? Many of those workers are now out of work.
They've lost their jobs. Now, some they're going to try to transfer to maybe other stores outside the city that outside the city where this hazard pay mandate doesn't doesn't apply. But but otherwise, they've closed stores. Isn't it inevitable that this is going to happen if we dramatically jack up the minimum wage? And this, see, I don't even know if you can say it's an unintended consequence. It's certainly not an unforeseeable consequence. Yes, some people will make more money, no question about it. But other people will lose their jobs, and other businesses will close. So, what's the sense of paying people some more money if it's going to cost the businesses to close? Now, the story out there today is Walmart. Everybody hates Walmart, or at least many people hate Walmart. Walmart has just announced that they're going to up their minimum wage for employees up to 15 bucks an hour. That's great. That's the way the market is supposed to work. And it's an incentive for people to want to go to work for Walmart, and it's incentive for businesses that compete with Walmart for, for employees to try to raise their money as well, their salaries as well. But it's not the government requiring it. If we make employers pay more, isn't it inevitable that we're going to lose jobs? And my answer would be yes. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.